The scripture reading today is found in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, and be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove that the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. May God richly bless the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 12. If you know anything about my sermons, you know that they're not long. Um, as I studied uh, this message this past week, my message got longer and longer and longer and longer. Uh, I think I'm going to get up to about 12 or 13 pages just of an outline. No, I'm not going to afflict you with that today. So I'm going to preach what my old friend, now deceased, Tom Malone Sr. used to call a freight train message. That is, I'll sort of unhook it in the middle. Have it, unhook it in the middle and do the rest later. Uh, my eyes are getting bad. Yes, you noticed. My wife says you must get reading glasses. So yes, when I'm reading now, I have to have reading glasses. God certainly humbled me. I was always one to brag about my good eyesight. God got me back, causing me not to be able to read small text. So if I look down and have to put these on, you'll understand what I'm doing. Uh, Romans chapter 12, we've come to a big transition in this letter. And it is a letter. You understand that, don't you? Romans isn't some learned theological disquisition with Paul sitting down saying, I think I'm going to write a beautiful theology, a text of theology for my gorgeous ivory tower. First place, Paul wasn't in an ivory, ivory tower. In the second place, he wasn't writing this some sort of beautiful theology. He's writing a letter, a very urgent letter, to people that he had never visited before, but to people to whom he needed to write. But it is a long letter. You sit down and read it. It's pretty long, and therefore it has parts. I mean, if you wrote a letter, a really, really long letter, you'd know that you'd have to put some parts in the letter. I mean, you wouldn't write about one thing. If you, write like, if you wrote like a 17-page letter... It probably wouldn't be just about one thing. You'd write and then you say, okay, there's the next thing I need to do. Well, that's essentially what Paul's doing here and what we call chapter 12. You know, originally there weren't like chapter headings, right? Does everybody understand that? And verses. It's just for ease of reference. So I wouldn't have to say, go about halfway through. Everybody, count the paragraphs. No, this is just for ease of reference. But we've gotten about two-thirds of the way, maybe even more, through this letter. Long letter, it has parts. Well, thus far, Paul's been uh, completing his discussion of what we can call a gospel worldview. You remember, I mean, if we reduce it to three parts, essentially what the gospel worldview is, creation, sin, redemption. If you understand those three things, you'll understand at least the basics, the basics of a gospel worldview. First of all, creation. God created everything in six days, rested on the seventh, and he created everything to be good. The physical universe is good. It's not inferior, it's good. Like this, apart from sin, is good. Physical things are good. Nothing wrong with them. Food is good. It can be abused, but it's made originally good. But of course, what did man do? Man sinned. And of course, sin. By the way, what is sin? The transgression of God's holy law. We sin and we break God's law. And that elicits or brings down God's judge, judgment. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 3, he says of both Jew and Gentile, remember what he says, the whole world stands guilty before God. And he uses this language even that Job used. I put my hand over my mouth. Every mouth. Remember he said that in, in Romans 3? That every mouth may be stopped. 
It's as though we're standing in the great heavenly tribunal and God says, you did this. I was a good God and a gracious God. And you broke my law in this way and this and this. And it's as though you say, but I would give you. And then you go, I'm talking to God. There aren't any excuses. And you go, like that. That's kind of the image that's used in Romans chapter 3. Uh, children, by the way, that means you. You're all sinners. You need to trust in Christ alone for salvation. You won't make it on your own. You're not good enough. So I'm not really bad. I mean, I'm not old enough to commit adultery and kill anybody. And I'm not too bad. Yeah, you're pretty bad. You need salvation in Jesus Christ. You need to trust in him alone for salvation. And that leads to the third thing. We have creation. We have sin. And the third thing is, do you remember? Redemption. Salvation and redemption. By means of Jesus' death on the cross. He died on the cross. And in dying on the cross, he suffered in our place. He suffered in our place, fulfilling all of the Old Testament sacrifices. He suffered in our place. We should have died and suffered, but he did. And then he rose again, the Bible says, in great victory, destroying the power of sin. And Paul goes on to say in Romans 4 and elsewhere that we are justified by what? This is hard. By what? Faith. What does that mean? As our total trust in Christ. We cast ourselves completely on him. We're not justified by our human achievement. Because then, of course, the Bible says in Ephesians, we can boast. Wouldn't that be amazing, going to heaven? If we could be saved by our good works, couldn't you imagine going to heaven and somebody strutting around saying, I'm here because, you know, I was pretty good. Can you imagine someone in heaven even, I mean, you would be banished to hell just for saying such a stupid, inane thing. We're saved totally by the grace of God and what Jesus Christ has done. Therefore, justification or righteousness comes to us only by faith. Now comes in Romans chapter 12. That was just a quick summary of the first uh, 11. I mean, I could go on and on. Remember, we talked about the Jews and predestination and so many other things, but that's just a quick summary. Now we go on to what we might call in Romans chapter 12 onward to application. Now, as Christians... We must, uh, our faith has to be both uh, mental and applicational. By mental, I mean we have to believe certain things. Does everybody here understand that? That's one of the reasons that we confess the creed every week. Christianity is not a faith in which you say, well, if I just do good things, if, if I don't harm anyone, uh, if I'm kind to other people, that's enough. That may be true of other faiths. That's not true of Christianity. Christianity has a doctrinal or theological intellectual content. In other words, you have to believe certain things in order to be a Christian. And if you don't believe them, you will go to hell. I know that may not be very popular. And of course, you know me. I more than anything, my popularity, right? <laughs> That's why we have to confess the faith. That's one reason we confess it. There are certain things you have to believe. You have to affirm. Young people, children, do you understand that? You have to believe things in your heart. So then Paul says here in the first verse of chapter 12, he says, I beseech you. Now, some of you other translations, though, how, does, how is that? It's translated differently. Some of you, does it say appeal to you? Do some of your translations say appeal? Urge. Some of you say urge. Any other ones? Okay, essentially that translation of that word, it's a very, very strong word. It's what we would call like a pathos-filled word. He's saying, I'm, I'm really asking you, sometimes it's translated, I mean, almost beg. We would almost say, not quite that strong, but almost. He says, please listen to me. I'm begging you on the basis of what I've just said. On all of this stuff, this wonderful worldview, I'm begging you, do this. That is what he says in, the, in, the, in that verse, in the next verse. That Greek word also has a real note of authority behind it. It's not just, I'm really begging you, 
It's like I'm really imploring you under divine authority. This is what you need to do. That's what Paul's saying. So then, two things in these verses, and I'm going to go over them briefly today. First, he calls us to bodily sacrifice. Did you see that? He says, I I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Bodies? Where'd that come from? Bodies? What's that supposed to be? Now, that's obviously a metaphor. He's not asking them to climb up on an altar and to be burned and killed, though there have certainly been many martyrs for the faith. Even today, and maybe some of our children or grandchildren may be martyrs for the faith. No, he's extending what he said earlier in chapter 6, verses 15 to 17. Do you remember Paul's appeal at that time? What he says? He says, yield your members. Now, refresh my memory. What does Paul mean when he uses the term as a translated members in the book of Romans? Yield your members. Do you know what I mean? It means like your hands, your arms, your butt, your members. Hey, is that a part? Hello, is that a part of your body? He doesn't say, yield your interior spirit. We live in an interiorized Christian world today. You know what I mean by that? It's as though, you know, I only need to believe in Jesus, and I only need to be close to him and be close to God, just kind of in here, of course, and that's true. But it doesn't have to be reflected out here. It's as though, essentially, the important thing is my mental capacity. If I have the right mental attitude toward God, and if I mentally sort of love Jesus, then everything is okay. And what goes on out here physically, that doesn't really matter. That's low and base. Friends, that may be a popular teaching today. That's not the biblical teaching. That's not Pauline teaching. He says, yield your members, instruments to God. And here he goes, and he says, your entire body. Now, it seems what he's referring to here is specifically to Old Testament sacrifices. But we need to understand that there were two main reasons sacrifices were offered in the Old Testament. One of them is the obvious one. And it's what? Sacrifice for sin. Right? Does everybody understand that? You sin in the Old Testament, and to Israel, and even before Israel, you bring the sacrifice. And you give the sacrifice before the Lord. You don't have to die because you have a substitute. That's called substitutionary what? Atonement. Substitutionary atonement. That's one of the main reasons for sacrifices in the Old Testament. But you need to understand, that's not the only reason. So what? I mean, the animals are killed in the Old Testament, and there's a great day of atonements. Atonement, and then the animals are killed so that we don't have to die. The Jews didn't have to die. And Jesus is the fulfillment. He is like the Lamb of God. He's killed for us. And that's kind of what they were all about. And that's all they were all about, right? And if you've read the Old Testament, you know that's not true. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices were all, also often given for gratitude and for homage to God. Uh, let me give you an example of that. This is beautiful. Do you remember the story in 1 Kings chapter 8 when Solomon, under Solomon, he had built this gorgeous, huge, huge temple? You remember the building of the first temple that we read about in 1 Kings? Solomon was the third king of Israel and he amassed all of this wealth, all of this wealth. By the way, as I understand it, today if it were that temple were rebuilt in today's terms, it would be worth about, it would take about and worth about, are you ready for this? $147 billion. That's billion with a B. I mean, think about the solid gold. All, much of this huge rocks, huge crevices, huge things of solid gold. So 
he's creating this, he builds this temple before the Lord. And then, of course, at the end, there's the time of the dedication of this temple. And all the Jews come before come before uh, the Lord, and Solomon is speaking, and I just want to read, listen to this. Uh, Solomon says, I'm reading from 1 Kings, uh, uh, yeah, 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon says, Blessed be the Lord who has given a rest to his people Israel, that is, no longer any wars, according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. Isn't that a beautiful expression? There has not failed one good word of God, which he promised. And then we read this. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. Did you get that? Those are round numbers, of course. I don't think that they counted every single one. But 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. And guess what? This was not, they were not sacrificed for atonement. There's no indication there that they were sacrificed for atonement. So think with me. As you read the passage, why were they sacrificed? A thank offering to God. A thank offering to God and gratitude for all that he had done. We have another example of this. In, I was just reading this morning in John chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 26. We read that Jesus is in Bethany. He's in the house of three of his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And, and Mary comes, the Bible says, Mary comes with some very expensive perfume. A pound of perfume. And today it would be worth about, as I understand it, four or $5,000. You say, well, I've never seen any cologne or perfume that expensive. Trust me, there are places in New York you can go and get perfume and cologne that's five dollars to $10,000. Like one little drop of it would be worth hundreds of dollars. Yeah, so she brought this and anointed the Bible, says Jesus' feet, and the other parallel accounts say that his whole body, so probably she started with his feet and anointed his whole body for the burial. And what did Judas say? Do you remember? And the Bible says other disciples too, but particularly Judas. You remember what Judas said? Unbelievable. He was the economist. He was the great economist. Why this waste? This could be given to the poor. Doesn't that sound very pious? And how did Jesus respond? He says, you don't understand. She's done this for my burial. The poor will always have around, but you're not going to have me around all the time, and I am more important. So she was willing to sacrifice, make a great sacrifice, and waste this on Jesus Christ. Paul's essential point here is that we should be willing, can I put it this way, to waste our entire lives on Jesus Christ for all that he's done for us. Now, Jesus Christ, the Bible says, paid a lot for us on the cross, and according to the word of God, he's worth our sacrificing everything for him. Uh, the supreme sin, A.W. Tozer used to say, the supreme sin of a profane society is ingratitude. That's essentially what Paul himself said in Romans chapter 1. What was the main mark of apostasy, Paul said, speaking of the Gentiles? When they knew God, they didn't glorify God as God. And essentially, isn't that the sin of a profane world today? That God is very good. God gives us, on the whole, good health, and he gives good children, and he gives us good food. And even those who grow up in cultures like, in third world countries, where we in America would think it's very, very difficult. But, you know, that's true in some cases. But even when we're overseas like that, and even when we're in third world countries, 
You know, people do eat, most of them eat, not like we do, and they breathe God's good air and they enjoy it. God actually is a pretty good God. In fact, he's a wonderful God. And yet we turn our backs on him. That's the supreme sin of a profane society. So Paul essentially says that we as the people of God, on the basis of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, what we are called to do is to waste our lives on him. Are you willing to do that? To present your bodies a living sacrifice? Let me go back quickly to bodies. There's no dualism in Paul's thought. By bodies, he means the entire person. Your mind, your environment, your time, your money, your children, your entire future. It all belongs to God. It means we can't have an interiorized Christianity. A Christianity in, we, in which we say in the morning, Jesus, I love you and I want to be close to you. And it's nice to be close to you and to talk to you. And then we basically live our lives like everybody else. A Christianity in, we, in which we don't give our money to him. A Christianity in which we don't do good works for others. Like as we're talking, making meals for those who need meals. A Christianity in which we don't talk to others about the faith or share the gospel. A Christianity in, we, in which we don't live out the faith where people can observably say, oh yeah, that person's probably a Christian. Not because they're loud mouth. I can just tell by the way that they walk and things that they say. I can tell because this person, their faith affects their whole life. That's what Paul is talking about. That's what he's talking about. Wasting your entire life off offering it as a sacrifice. Giving your body to him. What does that specifically look like? It means, among other things, that every day, every day, we come before God and say, God, what pleases you? What does your word say? It means we surrender our plans. We surrender our plans for God's plans. It means that we're willing to give up those things that we treasure and that we cherish that are wrong. Impure thoughts. It's easy to cherish impure thoughts and say they're not hurting anyone else, whether they are lustful thoughts or whether they are cruel thoughts or whether they're vindictive thoughts. They're not hurting anybody else and I like to treasure them. Man, this person did me dirty years ago, and I just love thinking about getting back at them. I just love it. We like to cherish those thoughts, and it's wrong. A manipulative personality, men manipulating women, women manipulating their husbands. Well, I know exactly what I can do and say and cry at just the right time, say what I want to get my husband to do what I want him to do. That is a sin, and husbands can do it with wives also. You say, but that's just a little minor thing, and that's not a very serious thing. But you see, when you give your lives and bodies a sacrifice to God, you're giving up all of that. Get even at all costs. Remember this, God doesn't want, mu God doesn't want much. He just wants everything. He wants and deserves everything. You say, well, Andrew, that's kind of a hard bargain. Yeah, that's exactly what Paul's saying there. It's kind of a hard bargain. He wants us in the totality of our being. He says, he goes on to say, notice, give a living sacrifice wholly acceptable to God. Uh, it's, what he's arguing there theologically is that we don't offer God the old man, but we offer to God the new man or the new person that he spoke of in chapter 6. As in the Old Testament, God demands holy sacrifices. Holy, not just W-H-O-L-L-Y entirely, but H-O-L-Y, righteous. You know, today, even alleged Christians poke fun at holiness. There is this postmodern attitude that is just sort of cynical about holiness. Well, yeah, they look holy, but, you know, if we really saw in their hearts, they aren't really holy. It just assumes everybody's hypocrites. And, of course, without Christ, we are hypocrites and without the power of the Holy Spirit. But that's just really sad because we're called to live holy lives. And God doesn't think it's funny. He demands holiness. He demands holiness. One of the most wonderful things 
with you precious young people here and you children as you grow up, if it can be said of you, so-and-so lives a holy life, a holy life. When people look at you and they say, you know, this person, his language is godly language. He has a zeal for God. When whatever his hand finds to do, he's a very hard worker. He's on time at work. He and she's very faithful with, with uh, their children. The young person is very faithful at school. In other words, there ought to be, how can we put it this way, as Francis Schaeffer might say, um, uh, uh, observable, observable righteousness. Now, we tend to often equate that with Phariseeism. Well, if you can see it, if you can see it, it has to be somebody has to be uh, uh, trying to be better than somebody else. That's false. You can't see somebody's motivation. Our righteousness needs to be observable. People need to recognize it. And then notice he goes on to say at the last part of verse 1, he speaks of your... Uh, reasonable service. Now, how many of you have in your translations spiritual worship? Your translation says spiritual worship. Okay. Now, that's not necessarily bad, but actually on this point, the older translations are better. The translation there is, should be reasonable or rational. Essentially, what it means is that with that word that's translated sometimes spiritual or reasonable in the King James, what it really means is that we have to have a, a worship that's very conscious. That is, that we think about. That is, that engages our minds. Now, we suffer today from an irrational Christianity. We suffer from a Christianity that glories in irrationality. It brags about its anti-intellectualism. Even takes it as a badge of honor. Oh, yes, this is certainly true in some of the emergent churches and various others. Uh, there's sort of a non-theological, or shall we say it, relational Christianity. And the church then becomes what we like to call the holy huddle. That's what I like to call it, the holy huddle. Essentially, churches just find, you just come to church and get together, and isn't it fun to see all my friends? Fun, fun, fun to be at church. And, and some guy gets up there, and he, he talks, he's, he's really cool, and he talks for about ten minutes about how we can just kind of sort of be nice to Jesus, and how Jesus is nice to us. And it's just kind of fun being in church. Now, of course, I'm exaggerating a little, but not very much. In churches like this, there are, and I'm not, I'm not having a bad attitude. God loves all believers, and I love them all, thank God. But this happens to be an application, I believe, of what Paul is saying here, and it has to be made. Often in congregations like this where there are no creeds, where there's no theology, where there's no expository preaching, where we leave and we say, ah, oh, it just made me feel good. I would suggest to you that when Paul says our worship has to be reasonable or rational, he would have no interest in that form of Christianity. Worship is rational, it is reasonable, and it deeply engages the mind. And I would say that worship that circumvents the mind is not biblical worship. Now, is the other extreme wrong? Yes, it is. The church is not a lecture hall. Or you come and the minister just stands up and delivers some beautiful lecture and people are is falling off. People tend not to do that when I preach. Not because I'm great, but because I'm loud and boisterous and annoying. So if you leave church and you feel like, well, I felt good today. I was really juiced up. But there's no engagement of the intellect. I would suggest to you that Paul would say, you got a problem. Because biblical worship is rational and it does engage the intellect. And if you have a minister that refuses to engage the intellect, that refuses to take the congregation little by little and draw them up to think about the truths of God and force them down intellectual and mental paths and moral paths to which they're not accustomed, that you haven't had biblical worship. When you leave here every Sunday, your mind should be engaged. 
By the way, that's also true of the hymns. And that's one reason that we sing a number of hymns here. Would you like to know why? When you sing some of the older hymns, have you ever noticed some of the older hymns, you sing them and you think, well, I have to kind of think about that for a while. Have you ever noticed some of those hymns are written in such a way you say, I have to think about those. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Worship engages our, not just our, quote, heart, our emotions, but also our mind. The point is that our worship is a conscious, conscious worship springing from our minds. Every day, every day, Paul's saying, we willingly lay down our lives, our ambitions, our vision for Jesus Christ. By the way, I would say quickly in this passage, there is no distinction. Paul is not offering any distinction between daily worship and the worship like we're doing now on Sundays. In fact, probably both are implied. Some people say, well, this is just sort of obviously talking about Sunday worship because that's the only time when we really, that's kind of our jazzed up, important worship. Paul never would have said such an inane thing. On the other hand, we are called among the people of God to come together on the first day of the week to worship the triune God, to celebrate Jesus Christ. So it refers to both of these things. That is why every day we as individuals commit ourselves to God in worship. That is why every Sunday we recommit ourselves publicly in rational worship. That's why we need to be here. You need to be here. That's why we have the reading of the word. That's why we, one reason, we confess the great creed. That's why we unite in, in praying the Lord's Prayer. That is why we have communion every week and hear the preaching of the word. Why, why, why? Because we're offering spiritual, or more accurately, rational worship to God. Do you understand that? And that is why, as we read a few weeks ago in Hebrews, we can't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. This is a time of public and rational worship. So then in conclusion, the question we must ask ourselves is this. Is Jesus worth it? In light of the cross, what will you and I sacrifice? Now know this, and with this I conclude. Um, our life decisions reveal our level of Christianity. Your level of Christianity and mine is not determined by what we say. It's determined by what we do and how we act. So, I pose some questions. How do you spend your time? Or as Bob Jones used to say, how do you spend your time when you're free to spend your time anytime, in any way you want to spend your time? That'll really tell you what you like. Where do you spend your money? How do you decide where you're going to work? What about vacations? How do you plan your vacations? What about educating your children? Where should they be educated? Uh, young people, and I speak especially to those of you here between the ages of, oh, let's say 16 and 24. Right now, you are deciding for the rest of your life. It was 20... Now, almost 27 years ago, that I made a momentous decision to marry my wonderful wife. That was a momentous de decision that completely reshaped my life for the good. If I had married the wrong woman, oh, what trouble I would have been in. Um, you young people right now are creating patterns and making decisions that are going to shape the rest of your life. According to Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, you are called to offer your bodies in the totality of your being as a living sacrifice to God. The question is, after what Christ has done for us, after what Jesus has given on the cross for us, after what he has done, is it worth it? 
Is it worth sacrificing everything for him? Is it worth giving our entire lives to him? So that at the end of our days we can say, I've sure failed many times, but I've lived a life given totally to God. Is he worth it? I would say that he is. And when we come today in communion, essentially we're saying, we're recognizing what Christ has done, and we're saying he is worth it because of his broken body, because of his blood that is poured out, he is worth it. And when we sing today in worship, we're essentially saying he is worth it. Let us pray. Uh, Lord, these are very sobering verses that Paul wrote about 2,000 years ago to the Romans that on the basis of the gospel worldview that he articulated, we're to offer our bodies a living sacrifice and wholly acceptable to you. Forgive me, O God, for not living a holy life. Forgive us, O God, for not living holy lives. Lord, forgive us for capitulating to what Francis Schaeffer called the forms of the world spirit. Forgive us, O oh God, for wanting the applause of an age that is hostile to you, rather than wanting your recognition and your well done. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done for us on the cross. And as we come today to this table and recognize your poured out blood and your broken body. Use it, O oh God, to strengthen us to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. Help the worship in this congregation to be rational, as Paul said. Reasonable. Not in the eyes of the world, O oh God, but in your eyes. May our minds and hearts and entire lives be engaged. Bless Michelle as he leads us. Fill us with your spirit. When we sing today, as Matt and the worship team Lead us. Lord, help us to sing from our hearts with great joy. We know that, O oh God, according to the Psalms, that our singing is a reflection, O oh God, of the Spirit within us, as even Paul wrote in Ephesians and elsewhere. Bless us, O oh God. Bless the dear saints here. Help us to encourage one another in the faith. Be with all those that are away. Do this, Father, for the sake of your Son, Jesus, who is our Lord and our King. Amen.